Hello and welcome to Asia Matters, the show that looks to go deeper into Asia's biggest stories. I'm Andrew People. The pandemic-related lockdown is continuing in much of the world, but in China, they're getting back to work. That gives us a chance to look into a major scandal from the business world that's come to light in recent weeks at a company called Luckin Coffee, which was once billed as China's answer to Starbucks. The company, whose shares are listed in New York, shocked investors in April when it emerged it may have simply fabricated over $300 million worth of revenue last year. It's an extraordinary story with big questions, not just for Luckin's management, but also the banks and accounting firms that backed it. And this latest scandal at a Chinese company listed in the US, of course, comes at a time when economic relations between the two countries are at their lowest ebb in years. Well, later we'll be joined by Catherine Pan-Giordano, who's a leading lawyer in the US-China transaction area. But joining us now to explain what happened at Luckin and its ramifications are Nana Li, who is the Research and Project Director for China at the Asian Corporate Governance Association, based in Hong Kong. And we also have Jackie Wong, who's a columnist at the Wall Street Journal in Hong Kong. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us for this episode and to talk about this extraordinary story, really. First of all, can we put luck in in some context? I, I refer to it as the Starbucks of China, but but how big had the company become, Nana, and what really did Luckin Coffee do? I think as a coffee brand, they become quite famous in China, and and they said started about three years ago. Uh, although my myself has never been a customer of Larkin, but I know a lot a lot of my friends in China they purchase their product almost daily, and uh, they branded themselves as the as you said as the Chinese Starbucks. And they opened a massive amount of shops in a very short of period. So before this scandal, the number of their branches in China is already more than what the Starbucks had over the last 10, 20 years. Something so, like four and a half thousand branches they had. Is that right? Yeah, about yeah, more than uh, like five thousand or so. Wow. And they're saying before this scandal, they're saying they will be opening ten thousand by end of 2021. And Jackie, like a lot of companies, Luckin sort of tried to stress that it was a somehow a high tech kind of company. What was its argument there? What was its sort of selling point as a tech company? I think it starts starts off by offering like delivery, and you basically everything you you do it on your mobile phone. They have an app. You basically have to order the coffee on the app, and. No cash is like involved. You pay by WeChat Pay or Alipay, and then you order it on the app. In the beginning, they do a lot of delivery so that you order on your app, even just one cup of coffee, they deliver that cup of coffee to your office. Very high tech, right? In the past year, maybe they do a bit more pickup. There's you order on the app, and then you go to the shop, you pick up the coffee, and then you basically pay it on your phone too. So you don't need to go there and then order it and then pay by cash. So so basically, that's the selling point that it, it tried to sell itself as a, a high tech company. And the company listed last year on the Nasdaq exchange in New York. It mm-hmm. raised around six hundred and fifty million dollars, mm-hmm. and then and obviously the shares went up pretty quickly. I think at one point it was worth around $12 billion, which is pretty amazing. But what was it about this company that got investors so excited over in America? I think it's because it's super high growth. I mean, it started from basically zero in 2017. And then 
I mean, at the third quarter last year, I think it's 4,500 stores already. Uh, and that's more than like what Starbucks has in China. Starbucks has maybe 4,100 or something like that. So, I mean, that, that kind of get uh, investors excited. Right? You have the China story, you have this high growth story. And I think in recent years, people, when, when you have a tech story to tell, people don't care about you lose money, even though basically Luckin has been losing money <laughs> every quarter. And, and as long as you have fast growth, and in a country like China, that's kind of make people excited. And then I think one story they sell is because like China doesn't consume a lot of coffee, so that they would see that as, as a positive because that, that means they have a lot of upside if they manage to convince the Chinese to drink coffee. But Nana, in retrospect, there were several red lights about this company. I mean, what were the sort of things that people and investors should have been wary of when they were looking at Luckin? I think you should really worry when you are uh, like a number of our members actually when, when I asked them about this case they said they were able to avoid uh, this loss because they they simply had some concerns on the corporate governance of this company so what it makes so interesting about this case is actually the man behind the liking Mr. Lu Zheng Yao this is not his first trial his first trial was a company called Car uh, which is listed in Hong Kong and still listing listing in Hong Kong and he basically used the same business model well, other one is a car rental company, one is a coffee company, but he basically used the same trick to establish these two companies and uh, basically burning money and uh, expand ridiculously uh, in, a, in a short time, then uh, raise funds, then basically dump the, the company and start something else. So he had form, he'd done this before. The idea was you launch these companies, they have very fast growth, but they don't actually make really very much in the way of profit. Is that right? I mean, had Luckin actually ever turned a profit, do we know? Before the scandal, they were arguing for the last quarter of 2019, they created a new uh, term, which is single shop profit. So they're arguing they're making profit on the shop basis. So that is actually excluding a lot of fixed costs like marketing on a high level, which is a very big portion for the business. So in nature, I, I actually don't think they have ever made a profit. <laughs> So we've got the picture of a company here that wasn't profitable, but was in theory at least growing very quickly. That appealed to investors. And yet they come out with this report and admit that they'd fabricated 300 million worth of revenue. I mean, Jackie, what do we know about that? How could they suddenly have discovered that hundreds of millions of dollars they hadn't actually generated in sales? Actually, they, they have ne never said why they suddenly came out of the blue to disclose this. But my guess is like because of the pandemic, I mean, many of the shops have been closed. I mean, you could make up the numbers, but somehow when you have some expenses to pay, you have to pay your bills. And when everything stopped, you just couldn't cover your cash outlay. And then somehow it reached a point that you, you cannot cover that anymore. That's my guess. I mean, they, they've never said why, why they suddenly came out. And according to them, they said it's because they do an internal audit and then they discovered this and then they, they just came out. But I mean, there's skepticism about the companies for quite a long time already. They were supposed to announce the annual result, but that hasn't been published for a long time. So people were kind of wondering well, what's happening. Then they came out with this announcement. So nobody quite knows what happened. But yet, as you say, there had been skepticism. In fact, there was a report that went round in February from an anonymous author raising questions about Luckin. Nana, what can you tell us about that? There was some association 
between that report and Muddy Waters, which is a US-based firm that often looks into companies and dubious accounting practices. But tell us a little bit more about this report that went round in February. Yeah, so Muddy Waters founder, uh, Carson Blank, Block, he, he basically, he said he got this report and uh, he did some of his own research and he think it's credible. So he then shared this report with the public. Uh, and also he started to short the company. And it's a quite detailed report. Actually, if you look at it, it's 89 pages. What does the report say? What's in there? The report basically said, lacking, they are faking their, their sales. So the report said almost half of the sales they had last year was fraudulent. And they got this conclusion from really field study. So they hired a large number of researchers part-time, full-time, and sitting in the store and also to get their receipts and to see what's the actual sales they have made in one day or over a week, then they simply add up all the numbers and they just couldn't find it's possible to have the final number that the company had disclosed. So somebody hired a whole bunch of people to actually go and sit in Luckin stores and monitor their sales. That's an extraordinary amount of effort for somebody to make to try and prove that this company was making up its sales. Yes, yes. They hired like 92 full-time and over a thousand part-time researchers to do the ground research. And do we know who did this? Who was funding this research? So we know the funding actually came from a company based in Hong Kong called Snow Lake, I think, Snow Lake Capital. Then uh, the Snow Snow Lake hired the two consulting firms, which then led to the the work I mentioned. But who asked Snow Lake to start all this research? We don't know. And uh, Snow Lake never actually said about who actually hired them or did they uh, just autonomously started to do this. So it's it's mystery upon mystery here. I mean, first of all, (laughs) we've got the missing revenue, the $300 million that's gone missing. But at the same time, we've got somewhat mysterious research into this company on the other side. It's quite an extraordinary situation. Thank you so much to both of you for joining us today and for talking through this extraordinary scandal, really. (laughs) Thank you once again to both Jackie Wong and Nana Lee. Well, joining us now from New York is Catherine Pan-Giordano. Catherine is a partner at the law firm Dorsey and White in New York, and she also leads the firm's US-China practice, so has a load of experience in dealing with Chinese companies and transactions in China. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Andrew. So we've been talking about the Luckin saga. From your point of view, this scandal that's taken place over the last month or two, what are the sort of key lessons that you're drawing from what's happened with Luckin and what's happened to its share price and the, the uh, outcome of its listing in New York? I think there are a few key lessons depending on which perspective you are coming from. If you are an investor looking into investing into emerging market companies and stocks, this is a valuable lesson to understand, you know, how to do your due diligence, um, what risks you really need to understand regarding some of these companies, etc. And for a company, I think the key lesson is really corporate governance. What kind of uh, board level governance and internal controls your company has in order to not only be successfully listed on a U.S. stock exchange, but also to maintain the listing 
and maintain uh, its credibility with shareholders. And from regulators' perspective, the lesson is it's really urgent for the regulators of both countries to really work closely with each other to ensure the inspection and the enforcement of the、uh, work paper issues. Sure. When you're advising U.S. companies, in particular, when they're looking to do transactions in China, what are the main issues around corporate governance that you see? What are the main areas of misunderstanding that can take place between the U.S. and China when it comes to that sort of how you run a company and how a company's governance is actually implemented? The biggest mistake I've seen people making is to assume that、uh, because it's a public company listed on a U.S. stock exchange, it must be run the same way as a, a typical American company or another international、mm. company that's listed on the stock exchange. And what, though, are the biggest differences that you see between corporate governance standards in the U.S. and in China? Then. The differences are in reality because on paper, companies in China nowadays are supposed to be governed by the board. And、mm. on paper, if you're a public company in the U.S., there are Sabin's-Oxley compliance requirements, internal control、uh, standards that you need to follow. But that's on paper, right? In reality,、mm. Chinese companies are not still not truly governed by the board. And I'm talking about most of them.、Uh, when those companies were first founded as a private enterprise, there is typically a powerful founder controls many aspects of the company's operations and decision makings, and that power and influence typically carries on even after a company becomes public and brings on a full board of director. And under the Chinese legal system, whoever that holds the chop and the seal of the company has the power to withdraw money from the bank, to sign contracts, etc. So that's a very powerful person, and that power is not necessarily balanced and supervised by a true board. Hmm. A lot has changed over the years in terms of corporate governance in China. But to you, is that still a key gap? It's that on paper a lot has changed, but in practice you still get these situations like Luckin. And and what you describe there seems to have been a classic case where there was a dominant shareholder or dominant shareholders in the company that really were running the company despite the apparent scrutiny of the board. Yes. And we also cannot forget that companies do not operate in a vacuum. They operate in a society, and they are influenced by the general business ethics and cultural of the society. Mm. Uh, mm. China, as a society, is becoming increasingly polarized in terms of、uh, wealth and status. Because of that, a lot of younger people are driven by success, which is not necessarily a bad thing by itself. But a lot of people want to get rich fast, and、um, they tend to bend the 
ethic standards on the way of becoming super rich. And then there is this urgency um, among the society because you know the housing price is extremely expensive. The overall cost of living has skyrocketed in the last 10 years. So there is a sense of urgency to get rich and get rich fast. And then as a result, you know, the companies operating in the society sometimes were acting in a way that cut corners and banned their ethics standards. Right. That's a really good point that actually the, often the way companies run mirrors broader trends in society. I guess then the message for investors is that if you are looking at investing in a Chinese company, whether it's one that's listed in New York or in Hong Kong or whatever, don't just look on paper, look at how the company has been run in practice over several years and do as much investigation and due diligence as you can into how that company has actually been run in practice. Is that what you would advise? That's right. On a daily level, we advise our clients on similar issues all the time. Mm. I always ask them to look through uh, the layers of corporate structure to see how the underlying assets that have value are truly controlled by the top layer public company. Typically, there are multiple layers of corporate structure. You know, uh, US mm. listed company, that might be a Cayman or a BVI vehicle, which in turn holds subsidiaries in Hong Kong. And then those subsidiaries hold wholly foreign-owned companies in China, what we call Wolfies, Wolfies in China, and then uh, the Wolfies hold assets. Or there can be a VIE structure, which is very popular among Chinese companies listed in the U.S. And remind our listeners what VIE stands for, please. VIE stands for Variable Interest Entities. It's an accounting term. Basically, a subsidiary can be consolidated into a parent company for financial reporting purposes under two doctrines. One is if the subsidiary is owned by the parent, of course, mm. it can be consolidated in the parent's financial statements. Another way is even if company A is not owned by company B, but if company B controls company A through a series of contracts, um, voting, profit sharing, liability bearing, etc., cetera, uh, company B can be consolidated into company A's financial statements as well. That's a VIE structure. Uh, and a lot of Chinese companies have the structure. If a lot of people understand the, the risk of that structure is if the parent company, that's typically the public company, doesn't own the subsidiary, and then your rights as a shareholder cannot be exercised through the typical shareholder rights avenue. You have to look to enforce those VIE contracts in order to safeguard uh, the value of your assets. And sometimes these contracts may have enforceability issues. Right. And that seems to be the case in the case of uh, Luckin here, that uh, you know, investors in the company who have bought shares on the NASDAQ exchange may find that it's actually quite difficult to enforce any legal rights over Luckin in China. Exactly. So that's what this new uh, regulation in the U.S. is about, the holding the foreign companies 
of Accountable Act.、Um, one of the purposes of this act is to make sure that whether you are a Chinese company or a foreign company, you properly make disclosures. And one of the key risk factors you should disclose if you are VIE structured company is to really let the investors understand what kind of recourse they、yeah. have. Against you if you do something bad.、Mm-hmm. It's absolutely fascinating. You talked at the start about the need for regulators in China and the U.S. maybe to cooperate a little bit more. I have to say, at the current moment, given the state of U.S.-China relations, you worry that that's not going to be the case. What's your sense of the prospects for that kind of cooperation? You are right. The cooperation so far hasn't progressed as smooth and as fast as people have hoped. There used to be a memorandum between PCAOB, which is a semi-regulatory body in the U.S. that inspects、yeah. accounting firms' work papers regarding their Chinese audit clients. PCAOB had a memorandum of understanding with the Chinese Ministry of Finance. And under that memorandum, the two countries, through these two authorities, can cooperate with each other to allow PCAOB certain inspections of workpaper、mm. within the territory of China under the consent of Ministry of Finance. And my understanding is the inspection work under that framework has occurred before, but、uh, when it comes to Larger and more important companies, PCAOB has been facing a lot of hurdles. For example, the Chinese authority has been invoking national secrecy law and、yeah. privacy concerns.、Uh, so the cooperation between the two countries hasn't really progressed as smoothly as people have hoped. And this new law, hopefully, can really encourage. The two countries to continue to explore ways to cooperate, because this new law will be super important. If a Chinese company's、uh, auditing firm hasn't been inspected by PCAOB for three consecutive years, the company will be delisted. So you are going to see a large wave of Chinese company delisting from the U.S.、Mm. If If the work paper inspection issue cannot be resolved, the law really puts the ball in the Chinese regulators' court by changing the default. Because before the default if is if you don't cooperate to let PCAOB inspect the work paper, business will carry on as usual under the current status quo. But once the new law is passed, the status quo will be if you don't let PCAOB inspect, then After three years, the company will be delisted. delisted. And why are Chinese companies and why are Chinese regulators so sort of prickly about allowing scrutiny of company financial records and accounts? Some of the concerns are legitimate. Every country wants to safeguard their national secrets and safeguard citizens' privacy, etc. However, the fundamental philosophy of a public company is: I'm giving up. Some of my confidential company information in exchange for investors' confidence. So if、mm. I am a Chinese company and I want to access capital markets in the U.S., at the same time 
I don't want to give up information in exchange for my credibility and the trust of investors. That's a fundamental issue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's hard to see how, frankly, in the case of a coffee company, what uh, national secrets there could be there. I suppose the worry then that the outcome of this Luckin saga might be that we may not see many Chinese companies coming to list in New York anymore. Are you worried that that will be the case? That has already occurred in between the failures of a lot of uh, what they call China concept stock on the U.S. market, and then the change of regulations in the Chinese and Hong Kong domestic stock market. A lot of companies no longer view Nasdaq or NYSE as their first choice for capital markets.、Mm. Where are they looking to instead? Is it Hong Kong or London or somewhere else? The first choices are always the domestic markets, including the Chinese A share market. The valuations there are higher, and it's a familiar regime for a lot of the Chinese entrepreneurs to navigate. But、mm. in the past, they came to Nasdaq typically because they didn't meet the domestic listing requirements. Including three-year profitability, impossible for a emerging company. Let's say you're a technology company that is really、uh, getting off the ground, but you have an amazing technology and amazing market share. You can get listed on Nasdaq, but under the old regime, it's impossible for you to be listed in、uh, mainland or Hong Kong. That has changed now. Right, so it's easier to get a listing somewhere like. Like Hong Kong, I mean, certainly a company like Luckin barely seems to have turned a profit ever. So you can see the attraction there of Nasdaq. As I said at the start, you lead your U.S.-China transactional practice. Have the tensions between the U.S. and China more broadly hindered deal making in recent times? What's the、uh, outlook at the moment for deals between the two countries and companies and and so on that operate in their respective countries? So the deal flow has really slowed down. Even before the Lacking scandal, you probably have heard about the CFIUS regulation, which is a U.S. regulation that allows a government body in the U.S. to investigate and then to review foreign investments of U.S. companies. Typically,、mm. a Chinese acquisition or investment in the U.S. business. Will need to be reviewed by CFIUS these days. And then the other side of this is China has、uh, tightened its currency control, so it's hard for money to come out of China. And Catherine, CFIUS by CFIUS, you mean the body that scrutinizes transactions from overseas into the U.S. You just、right. remind us what it stands for. CFIUS stands for Committee of Foreign Investments in the U.S. It's a multi-agency government body that reviews foreign investments in U.S. business. I see. That's clear. Now, in terms of, we've obviously been concentrating on China and Chinese companies listing in the U.S. with the Luckin scandal. Is this something that you're seeing across Asia as well,、um, or is it an issue that's mainly to do with China? Unfortunately, it's an issue that mainly concerns China. But I have to be fair. You know, these corporate scandals do not just happen only to Chinese companies. 
right. went through the, the Theranos saga in the US, um, right. Elizabeth Holmes' company, bad blood can happen anywhere. Absolutely. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. Those insights are invaluable. That's it for another episode of Asia Matters. Thank you to Vincent Nee and Jason Lee, our producers. Thank you also to Alex Lestrange, who composed the music for the Asia Matters podcast. You can contact us at asiamatterspod at gmail.com. And also please use our Twitter handle, which is at asiamatterspod. Join us again soon. We'll have plenty more episodes to come in the near future. But for now, goodbye.